so to Psalm 88. So if you would, uh, turn to Psalm 88. We want to take a look at this theme of uh, clinging to God, praying in the midst of our troubles and our suffering uh, from another angle. Not not entirely different from this morning, not really different, but uh, through another lens, uh, through this psalm. So here's Psalm 88. I'll read this for us. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Shoal. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hands. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of God. Let me me pray for us and then we'll get into this text. Lord, um, we have just read your word, your very word to us. This very honest, painful, even hopeless song. And we know that life can sometimes get this hard even, Lord. And so would you teach us through this passage, what it looks like to follow you, what it looks like to belong to you, what it looks like to cling to you in the worst, in the darkest of times, God. So bring these truths to bear upon our minds, 
but on our hearts as well, Lord, that whatever season uh, we find ourselves in, whatever seasons are going to come our way uh, in the days and months ahead, that we be prepared, we be ready to walk with you and to stay in covenant with you. So uh, use this time now. Use me, Lord, in my weakness. And would you speak a personal word to each and every person here? Pray this in Jesus' name. Oh. Um, I wanted to look at this psalm because it's perhaps the bleakest psalm in this entire book. And usually lament psalms, as we're talking about lament psalms this morning, no matter how, the uh, how desperate the situation is for the psalmist, usually this, these lament psalms end on a note of positivity, on a note of joy, thankfulness, worship, that no matter how bad it is, David or whoever wrote the psalm will be like, but yet I will still praise you. Or we saw this morning, salvation belongs to our God. But this psalm, written by a man named Haman, you saw there ends with this verse. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Or if you have the NIV, this is NIV's translation. Darkness. Or you have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. In the Hebrew, you read this in the Hebrew, darkness is the very last word of the song. And that's how it ends. There's no joy, there's no worship ending this one. What a way to end a prayer in Scripture. Right? Darkness is my closest friend. Amen. <laughs> Let's move on to something else. See, with a lot of these songs, there's at least some kind of ray of light. But this one is like a dark, solitary prison cell, and there's no light coming in. And so I want to go through this song, and I want us to understand this song, and learn some things from this song, partly because there might be someone here right now. One of you might be, honestly, privately feeling, you can even identify with what this psalm is expressing. Maybe there's someone in this room who's suffering in this intense, unrelenting way where life is just drained out of you, and there doesn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel. And in your heart, the parts you feel helpless and hopeless. And whether you're going through Anything like this or not, and probably most of you are not in a desperate place like this, I do want to show all of us how desperate, des despairingly low the Psalms can go so that you can be comforted to find in Scripture a voice that expresses the depths of such affliction. So most of you may not be experiencing anything remotely close to this right now, but in understanding this psalm, knowing that this psalm is there, can prepare you for the future, where there might be bleak times that come your way. And 
you know what? When those hard times come, when times of suffering come, when darkness comes, that's not the time when you want to figure out how you're supposed to view and relate to God. You want to have a theology of suffering. You want to be prepared beforehand so that when that comes, you have an idea of what to do, how to cling to God in those times. So, even maybe if you're not able to really identify this right now, learn this and have it on standby for maybe darkness may, may be coming your way. Um, not a prophet, I'm not trying to be a pessimist here, but just preparing you for the realities of life. Okay? And so uh, we want to look at uh, three headings from this psalm. Right? And we're going to look at the pain of spiritual darkness. We're going to look at praying in the darkness, and then the purpose of the darkness. And so those are the three points uh, that we'll look under for this. First, the pain of spiritual darkness. I want us to understand what this psalmist, this man named Haman, is really going through. What is he experiencing? Personal spiritual darkness. Now, he's struggling with some kind of lifelong chronic, relentless, tormenting, unresolving, debilitating pain. Right? Verse 15, we saw, afflicted and close to death from my youth up. This has been a long time without any resolution. Now, we don't know exactly uh, what Haman was going through and the cause of his bleak anguish, and that's actually good for us because if his situation was spelled out very clearly, exactly, it'd be maybe harder for us to feel like we could apply this psalm to ourselves. But I think God, in his wisdom, deliberately leaves uh, Haman's condition, his affliction general, as a gift to us so that we can use this psalm and apply it to a variety of despairing hardships, afflictions, and difficulties. And so... uh, God's people, um, no matter um, how faithful you are, how obedient to, uh, you are, can suffer all types of chronic pain and lasting suffering like this. And we learn that there's a voice to be expressed in the midst of that. And there's comfort that could be had. Right? So whether it be people, imagine people with a lifelong disability, and that's not going to change. Maybe that's their perpetual darkness. For others, maybe it's struggling with depression, clinical depression. That's something that you can't be uh, fully, comprehensively healed from. Maybe you fall into that again and again, like those who struggle with bipolar. Right? Um, and you experience this darkness, it seems just time and time and time again. And something that's chronic, Right? something that's hard to get out of, and it's, it's relentless, and it's pain, and it's darkness. Right? So whatever Haman was experiencing, he was depressed. Right? Notice the words that he uses in the psalm. We see the word darkness a few times. He uses words describing death a lot. Shoal, which was the Hebrew word for um, right, the afterlife, where you go, where the dead go. In verse 3, right? Go down to the pit, verse 4. 
like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, verse 5, in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep, verse 6. So his chronic pain, his perpetual suffering makes him feel like he's the walking dead. That's what he feels like. Just walking around, feeling dead, just physically, emotionally. He's so afflicted and so depressed that even the closest people to him shun him, don't want to be around him. He's a hard person to be around because of what he's suffering and what he's tormented by. So no one's even there to comfort him, to be by his side in this. He is alone in his pain. And it's more than physical and emotional pain. The reason why I call this spiritual darkness is that on top of all that he's feeling, he feels that God himself has perhaps even abandoned him. That he feels the painful absence of God's presence, right? What do we see in a verse like verse 7? Your wrath, he's talking to God, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Right? This is an expression that Haman is feeling God's almost outright rejection and relentless wrath. He feel, fears like he's cut off from God. Perhaps even salvation is at stake here. Even if you are one that has not ever experienced this level of pain, and affliction and darkness. You probably experienced seasons of what the saints of old called the dark night of the soul. Have you guys heard that? Heard that phrase? Where you feel abandoned by God. You feel like God is not there, that he's absent, that he's far away from you. The Psalms, as well as many testimony of God's people throughout the ages, teach us that the dark night of the soul is a sure part of the Christian's pilgrimage of faith. And so, these are the kinds of things, these are the kinds of spiritual darkness experiences that this psalm is getting at. Now, allow me to share here just a little bit personally and how this psalm has been meaningful for me in my life. Um, I have had, in my past, a history of struggling with depression. And there have been a few seasons in my life, uh, especially back in college, where I went through uh, some serious bouts of depression uh, that lasted for for months. And I remember it being like a living hell. I remember being hounded morning to night with this heavy sense of worthlessness and hopelessness, and I was just agonized, uh, and drained mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. I mean, I would break down and cry at any point in the day. I wouldn't feel like doing anything. It would be hard for me to even get out of bed. I had no appetite. And it was easy for me in my mind to get to think about death, to think about even taking my own life, right? Um, having suicidal thoughts, not wanting to go on. Uh, in my worst moments. And I felt like I was just surviving, just trying to make it hour by hour. 
Right? And then on top of that, like kind of what Haman was feeling, I felt like times God had just outright abandoned me. I tried to read scripture during those times and I would feel nothing. Feel just like a blank page. I would try to pray and it would really feel like just talking to a wall. Um, and I, would, I remember just struggling with so much doubt, even that I might lose my salvation uh, during those seasons. And the only time I would get reprieved from this kind of relentless uh, pain and torment was when I would be able to fall asleep. That's it. Um, and then, on top of that, I actually have a history of uh, uh, sleep problems. I have a sleep disorder. Uh, pretty much like insomnia. right? So, having depression combined with not being able to fall asleep was the worst of combinations. And so I remember night after night, there would be times where I would just scream into my pillow, punching my bed, and just frustration and hopelessness. And I remember yelling times, God, how much do you hate me for making me go through things like this? There was a lot of just doubt and anger and frustration even at God. And the, and the reason why I share this personally, and I think this psalm is helpful, is to draw a lesson from this first part of the pain of spiritual darkness, is that you can experience these things, the darkest of times, and it can last a long time, no matter what you do or don't do. I say this to encourage you, in a way, actually, in that if you're experiencing this kind of pain, if you go through this, it doesn't mean necessarily you're doing something spiritually wrong. That's oftentimes the thought that comes into this, right? Have I done something wrong? Is this a consequence of me, a uh, particular sin, or not me not being faithful? But if you look at the psalm, Haman is crying out to God about this pain, and there's no sense in which this is a consequence of sin. Right? There's no repenting going on in this psalm. Now, that doesn't mean that Haman was without sin, but I think what this is getting at is that it wasn't his fault that he was plunged into this kind of darkness. And so, this was just in God's mysterious providence that he was in this chronic state of pain. And we see Haman here relentlessly trying to pray and to cling to God right, in the midst of this. And with that, that also means that there's no simple solution to get out of these darkest of times. Right? When I was going through depression, I was trying to cling to God. I was trying to read the Bible. I was trying to pray more. And just because I was doing that didn't mean that the darkness would immediately lift. Right? I had people at that time, I don't hold it against them, but they would give me counsel while I was going through this. of like, oh, you need to pray more. You need to read the word more. And there were, I think their intentions were good. But I was already doing that. And just doing those things doesn't mean there's a quick fix. And the darkness will be really good. Sometimes in God's mysterious providence, for reasons only known to him in his wisdom, he has us go through things like this. 
That's not because of your doing. And your doing might not immediately get you out of that. Now I know that doesn't feel good, it doesn't seem good, but hopefully that comforts you in a way to not blame yourself and to crush yourself in those dark times. For me, thankfully, the Lord delivered me out of those bouts of depression, and they mysteriously went. It wasn't because of, oh, I heard this particular sermon, or I had this unbelievable prayer time at this retreat, and the depression went away. They kind of went away as mysteriously as they came. I still don't know to this day. Well, that's the confusing pain, the mysterious pain of spiritual darkness that all saints can find themselves in at one time or another. And this psalm gives us a glimpse of that. And now let's move on to the next section. That's praying in darkness. Praying in the darkness. And two points under this heading. First one is very similar to the point you heard this morning. I just want to echo that again and reinforce it. And that's, like Haman, we are to complain to God, not complain about God in the darkness. Notice in Psalm 88, as much as Haman is in anguish, in torment, in pain, what is he doing here? The easiest of observations again. He's speaking to God about all these things. Yes, he is complaining. Yes, he is honestly expressing his hurts, his hopelessness, his pain. But he's always speaking it to God, not about God. See, we tend to run away from God in our pain and doubt, like I said this morning, and to complain about our situations apart from him. Or for some of us, we just turn inward. We cave in on ourselves, and we sink deeper in our despair. But that's a thing that we need to take away from the psalmist, that they're always doing it with God, to God. And that makes all the difference in the world. It can be the difference between staying with God, remaining with Him in the hardest of times, or falling away altogether and drifting away from Him. God invites us, like we saw in Psalm 3 this morning, to be bluntly honest with Him. To pray to Him, to express what you're going through as frankly as you can. He just wants you to do it to Him and with Him, not apart from Him. I quoted Eugene Peterson, the pastor this morning. There's another good quote. He says, We want to be at our best before God. Prayer, we think, means presenting ourselves before God so that He will be pleased with us. We put on our Sunday best in our prayers. But when we pray the prayers of God's people, the Psalms, we find that will not do. We must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. Here, are prayers that bring out not the best, but the worst in us. That's what Haman is doing here. If you read all the dialogue spoken to God by his people in the Bible, I think you'd be shocked. So how many of you have read through the book of Job? Book of Job. Great book also about 
suffering, and how to be a disciple in suffering, the theology of suffering in that book. Some of Job's prayers to God and what he expresses is so dark, right? It's sometimes shocking and jarring, right? So after all the um, um, adversity that he goes through, his life just collapsing all around him and even his health, you get to Job 3, where he curses the day he was born. And in verse 11 in, in Job 3, he says, Why did I not die at birth, God? Come out from the womb and expire immediately. Basically saying, God, it would have been so much better if you just killed me in the womb rather than me living this life and experiencing this. And it's true at the end of the book that God uh, speaks to Job, confronts him, and silences him right, for not seeing and beholding God for all that he is. But ultimately, at the end of the book, what do we see? We see God commending Job, rewarding Job, restoring him. James chapter 5 mentions Job. And what does James say about Job in that chapter? He uses Job as a chief example of steadfastness in suffering. Here's a man that persevered was steadfast and remained faithful. Even though, if you read through the book of Job, there's these vehement vehement complaints of anger, doubt, and depression. So why is it that James can say, here's a prime example of steadfastness and suffering? It's because, it's because Job complained to God. That, not apart from him. He wrestled with God. He stayed near God through it all. And that's what made the difference. No matter how honest he was. Speaking honestly to God is an act of faith that acknowledges him even when you struggle to see him for who he is. Or even just speaking to him, even though you can't see him or feel him, is an act of faith that keeps you in him. That keeps you clinging on. And that's doing something that unbelievers would never do in hard times, right? Unbelievers, they stay within themselves. They don't want to have anything to do with God. But saints, when they suffer, even the worst things, they're always in relationship with God, and that's what keeps them. Staying away from Him, complaining apart from Him, is what drifts you away from God clouds your view of God more more. To give you kind of an illustration I was thinking of, it's kind of similar to human relationships, our relationships with one another. I don't know if you're like this, but I find myself, when there's someone that I'm upset at, have an issue with, angry at, I find myself quickly escalating in that anger, in that bitterness, in that hard hardness toward that person when I stay away from them when I never interact with them. So I don't want to have anything to do with them. And that's when it's easy to demonize them, think about them and see them in the worst possible light, only see the bad side, caricature them as this holy, evil person, right? And um, and then, you know, occasions arise where I actually interact with them. Sometimes it's forced, I'm forced into that situation. Maybe God does it. 
I'm forced to interact with them. And almost always, after actually interacting with that person, talking to that person, I walk away less angry, less bitter, less hard-hearted. You know why? Because the caricature that you are making in your mind of that person, seeing them in the worst possible light, demonizing them, that gets softened. That imbalance becomes balanced when you actually talk to them, interact with them. Then you're like, no, they're not wholly evil like I'm making them out to be. Right? Yes, there's flaws in that person, but they're a person. Right? And here are other sides to them. And in interacting with them, I better understand where they're coming from. Maybe it doesn't minimize the issue that I have against them, but maybe I just better understand and can have more sympathy of why they acted the way they did or where they're coming from. And that only happens by actual interaction. And I'll walk away. Maybe the issue's not totally resolved. My bitterness doesn't completely go away, but at least it's softened. And this is the case when we're interacting with fellow sinners. But see, when in your worst times you're interacting with your God, that's the context when you're speaking to him. When it can become more clear who he truly is in the midst of what you're going through. When you interact with him, actually. So like Haman, we're to complain to God, not complain about God in darkness. And secondly, under this point, like Haman, we are to acknowledge God's sovereignty over our darkness. So here is Haman, who is he ascribing what he's going through to? It's all to God. It's like, you have put me here. You have made me afflicted from my youth. He's ascribing all this to God. In verses 6 to 8, he's basically saying, you have done this. You have put me in this pain. Now, it sounds like he's blaming God here, right? That you are the reason. But what he's saying is actually ultimately true. And there is an expression of faith that acknowledges God's supreme sovereignty over your situation, even your suffering. That in a sense, yes, God is the ultimate cause of why you're going through what you're going through. He has ordained it. He has sent it to you in your life. Yes, there are many secondary causes for our pain, our suffering, our fallen world our sin, our weakness, our human frailty, Satan himself, but it's God that's ultimately the one that has placed you there and has sent these things your way. That's what Job acknowledged. When all his children were killed, when all his possessions were taken away from him, when he was cursed by Satan with uh, physical uh, torment, what did he confess? He said, and this is him speaking to his wife who is urging him to curse God and die. And this, and he says, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? It sounds like he's blaming God, but he's not because the next verse right there says, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What he was doing was he was expressing faith that God was sovereign. 
He ordained all of this. And basically what he was saying is, both good and bad come from God. And if we are to receive the good things from God undeservedly, should we not be willing to accept the bad from the same God we trust to give us the good that we don't deserve? That's what he's confessing there. So he believes God sends both the good and the bad, and if you trust him and you thank him for the good things he gives you, shall you not receive in faith even the bad things as well? And so, as painful as your situation might be, as perpetual and relentless as your darkness might be, this is one thing, this is one truth that you can cling onto in the midst of it all. Simply that God is sovereign and he has ordained all of it. Think about this, think about this logic. If you're crying out to God in the midst of your worst moments to deliver you, out of that, to rescue you, to help you, to restore you. That means if you're calling upon him to do that, you believe he has the ability to do that, right? He has the ability to deliver you. But see, if he has the ability to deliver you out of these troubles, if you believe that and you're calling upon that from that, then he also had the ability to prevent you from getting into those troubles in the first place, right? And so... He has put you there. And so, at the very least, you can cling on to this truth that there's some reason, probably unknown to you, there's some reason in his wisdom that he has put you in these things and he has you suffering what he has you suffering. There's some purpose. It's not purposeless. And I tell you, during those um, seasons of depression I was going through, I was clinging on in faith. I had so many doubts. I felt like the one rope that I was hanging on to through all that was Romans 8.20. That I didn't know what I was going through, why I was going through it, but that in all this, God was working for me, for my good, according to his purpose. I didn't know what that purpose was, but he's doing something. I just kept on repeating that like 30 times a day. He's working for my good. He has a reason. He has a reason. He has a purpose. I don't know it, but he knows what he's doing. And that was like the one shred of truth that I could hold on to and keep me in God during those times. That's what Haman is doing here. By saying, you are doing this, God, he's clinging onto God's sovereignty. That's such a sweet truth in the darkest of times. Now with that, let's get to our last point. And that's the purpose of the darkness. So here is that God is sovereign. He ordains even our most painful times and situations. But why? What's the purpose of God having us go through even this level of relentless, unending, Tormenting anguish, chronic pain, this deep darkness. What's God's purpose in doing this? Right now, we don't know the exact reasons why you go through what you go through. Um, I heard one pastor put it 
You know, in any one thing that you go through, God's doing thousands of things. He's doing thousands of things. You might know two. We don't know exactly why God has us going through these things, but there are some things we can know from Scripture's testimony of the purpose of such darkness. And so under this I have two points. First, in the darkness, we cultivate genuine, resilient faith in the absence of supporting feelings. Let me unpack this. Feelings are a crucial part of us. That's an obvious statement. But, our feelings, our emotions, are often out of touch of what is true and what is real. And see, here's a danger that all of us fall into, is that we base our faith, how we view God, and our commitment based on what we feel, how we feel, rather than something objective. See, our feelings, our emotions are subjective. Right? They're subject to change. And again, they're often not rooted in reality of what is true. We base our faith and our commitment oftentimes on our feelings. But we need to base our faith and our commitment based on the rock-solid, absolute, objective foundation of the truth of God's Word. That's the only thing that will hold weight. If you base your faith on your feelings, on your emotions, that faith will fail often. But if your faith is rooted, grounded in the absolute truth of God's Word, then you have an unshakable foundation. We must let the Word ground and shape our feelings rather than the other way around. Let our feelings dictate what we believe and what we do as followers of Christ. And our faith and our commitment precisely get tested and cultivated when God seems absent. When God seems absent, when His presence seems withdrawn. To help us understand this, I came across this very helpful excerpt from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. How many of you have read Screwtape Letters or are aware of that book? Right, so this book is very insightful. It just shows um, Lewis's brilliance. And what it is, is a book of letters written by a senior devil, uh, Screwtape, to a junior devil, right? his nephew Wormwood. And basically he's teaching the senior devil, he's mentoring, he's teaching his nephew, this junior devil, how to tempt, how to undermine, how to trip up Christians in their faith, in their obedience and their commitment to God. And so he's teaching Wormwood the rope. So this is, I'm going to read this excerpt here, um, and this is again the perspective of a demon writing to younger demon. And he's getting at the purpose of when God withdraws himself, when he makes himself seem absent from his people, like we see with Haman. And so this is what he says. This kind of ranking, I love long quotes, if you notice. I know it's kind of hard to follow, but I couldn't cut stuff out. It's just too good. So follow along with me. It says, My dear Wormwood, 
So you have hopes that the patience, and this is the Christian that Wormwood is assigned to, to try to trip up, that the patient's religious phase is dying away, have you? Has no one ever told you about the law of undulation? While their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change. For to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation. The repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back. A series of troughs and peaks. So this is what human life is like in a lot of different ways. Peaks and valleys, ups and downs, right? If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life. His interest in his work, his affection for his friends, his physical appetites all go up and down. As long as he lives on earth, Periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They are merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good unless you make a good use of it. Basically what he's saying is, so this Christian is going through this period of spiritual dryness, emptiness, where he feels like God is distant, or kind of what I call the dark night of the soul. And he's saying, don't think you did this, right? you got to know how to use it, but you didn't do this. And he goes on to say, to decide what the best use of it is, you must ask what use the enemy, who's the enemy here? God what God wants to make of it, and then do the opposite. Now listen to this. This is the key part. Now it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, God relies on the troughs even more than on peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else, like Haman. You must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. Merely to override a human will as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do would be for him useless. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning so sometimes he'll help his people by making himself so ever tangibly, palpably present. He will set them off with communications of his presence, which though faint seem great, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. So sometimes he'll give us those peak mountaintop type experiences and seasons, right? But, goes on to say, he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. That's motivation, desire, feelings. It is during such trough periods 
much more than during the peak periods that the believer is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those that please him best. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon the universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken like Haman and still obeys. You follow what Lewis is saying here? See, commonly God will make his presence so tangibly felt and so sweet to us, especially to new believers. Right? So remember, for those of you who become a Christian recently or as an adult, when you were first converted, those first few months, first year, I mean, it was delightful, was it not? You had your first love for God just seemed so near. Worshiping him, thanking him, praying to him seemed really easy. And he does that to give that kind of support. But he does not do that for long. He can't do that for long for your good. Just like a parent in rearing a child, a baby. You can't just keep carrying a baby around everywhere as it turns into a toddler, as it you know, it gets older and older. You can't just keep uh, carrying and coddling the baby. You must let it walk on its own without your help. Even the baby stumbling and falling all over the place. That's how the baby grows up. And in order to test you and to toughen you and to cultivate genuine, resilient faith, he will withdraw himself from you and give you these seasons of the valley darkness where he's absent. And that's when maturity happens. You know, when I look back upon my life, where God really matured and strengthened, deepened my faith in him, my commitment to him, it wasn't in the easy times. It wasn't in the times, as much as I want those times, the mountaintop type experiences, right? Where God just seems so palpably near. No, it was in those times where he seemed so far away. That when praying, it seemed like I was talking to a brick wall. And yet, I need to learn to persevere in that. That's when genuine, resilient, enduring faith was forged. So you know what? is dangerous to the devil's cause, what's a great sign that you're journeying, that you're maturing in this life of faith? It's when you're able in these dark times where you say, God, I don't feel you. I don't see you. I don't sense you. You're far away. How long are you keeping me in this? 
I'm going to stay near you. I'm going to keep clinging to you. I'm going to call upon you, even though I don't see you. That's what Haman learned to do in his chronic pain. Day after day, month after month, year after year. God does that to the best of the saints. And he does that to make them strong oaks of righteousness. And committed to him, even when all the supporting things are gone. It's kind of like this. Here's another picture for you of what we need to do when we find ourselves in these storms, in these times of darkness, to keep clinging to God. Right, here's um, just a picture of pilots flying their, their planes. And um, when pilots fly the planes, they often fly into thick clouds, into turbulence, right? Storms where they can't see anything around them, and uh, I have a friend actually that's in flight school right now. So he's, you know, building up his hours as a pilot, training, and he's learning to go through all kinds of different weather weather patterns. And I remember him telling me the first time he went to a storm, dark clouds, it was very unsettling, right? And they call this technically spatial disorientation because you can't see anything. Visibility is zero can't see the horizon around you. So how are you supposed to fly the plane when you go into that, um, into um, that kind of atmosphere where you can't see anything, no visibility, just dark clouds? What you're taught not to do is fly by sight, by looking out the window and just trying to see the horizon, the altitude where you're at. If you try to depend on what you're seeing in front of you out the window, you will, you will crash the plane. You'll get into an accident. What you need to do when you're flying through those storms is you need to learn to fly by the instruments on the panel right in front of you. Those instruments tell you everything. Your altitude, your speed, the trajectory your flight is on. Now those instruments might be giving you readings that seem very different from what you sense outside. Well, what do you need to go by during those times? What you see with your eyes or by what the instruments are telling you on the panel? You need to fly by the instruments. That's what it means to live by faith, not by sight. Now, what are our instruments? They're the means of grace that God has given to us, the disciplines of the Christian life, the things, the applications you hear every sermon, the word, prayer, sacraments coming to the Lord's table, being in corporate worship, being in community, all these things that are so mundane and ordinary, these are the means of grace, these are the instruments that are on the panel in front of you that you need to live by continue to do despite what you're feeling, despite what you're seeing. Those are things that God has given you to keep clinging to Him. You need to live by faith, not by sight. If you stop looking at the spiritual, um, at, at the instruments God has given you, using those things, that's when you'll lose your spiritual bearings. That's when you'll crash the 
You need to learn to fly by the instruments. And when you live by the instruments, the truth of God's word, staying in prayer, staying in community, then you're able to believe God's daylight at midnight, during midnight experiences of your life. That even though it might feel like the middle of the night for you, life-wise, that you believe and you trust and you cling on to the sun that is still out there in the sky beating strongly. That though you're in some kind of storm where it's just ominous and overcast, these clouds above you, there's always the sun behind it shining. It's by the instruments, by his word, as you root your faith in that, that you can see the daylight and the midnight experiences of your life. And so that's what we see Haman doing. And maybe something um, in the midst of his chronic pain, he was able to understand this, this purpose of, of the darkness, that God was growing such deep roots within him, such resilience within him. And that's why we see him unbelievably praying without ceasing, despite this pain not ever going away, and there being no light at the end of the tunnel. So let me just pause here and say, for those of you who may have been going through just enduring difficulties, and it doesn't seem like it's letting up, and there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel, it's very easy for you to just check out and say, you know what? I'm not going to pray about this anymore. What's the use? What's the purpose of going to the world? It's not going to fix my problem. It's not going to get me out of this. But I have the broader perspective of the greater purpose that God might be doing in me through these experiences. Now lastly, lastly here, the purpose of the darkness is that in the darkness, we are made to place our hope in the only thing that saves us, and that's the gospel. Think about your life. We put our hopes, honestly, in a lot of earthly things, don't we? We put our security in all kinds of things. Finances, for those of you who really struggle to find your security in, in, in your money, the money that you make, the money that you save. We put our security, our hope in relationships, our friends, our family, your spouse. That's where you place your hopes. Some of you place your hopes in your career, the work that you're in, or the job that you hope to have in the future. We have all these earthly hopes but you know what the spiritual darkness does? These worst times, they strip those hopes away. They force you to realize you can't depend on these things. These things do not give you security. And they, because these false hopes, these earthly hopes get knocked out from within you, it causes you, it drives you, it presses in. And this is what God is doing into the only real hope that you have. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that saved you and the gospel that will help you and give you hope time and time again. The only hope that you have. Where do we see this gospel? 
Where do we see the gospel of Jesus in this passage? Well, like we saw this morning in Psalm 3, it's more hinted at than seen. We see that Haman felt like he was abandoned by God in this pain that he was going through. But it wasn't true abandonment. He was never truly forsaken, absolutely um, abandoned by God. There was only one person who was faithful to God and yet was absolutely enveloped in darkness and truly abandoned. And that's our Savior. He suffered fully with this psalm for this. And think about this psalm, the Psalm 88. You can imagine him praying this prayer while he was on the cross. Right? He must have prayed this prayer or a prayer like it, where he was feeling overwhelming, unrelenting, tormenting darkness. That on the cross, he experienced this deep anguish, not only physically, not only spirit, uh, uh, emotionally, but spiritually. He's the only one for which this last line of Psalm 88 was absolutely true, where darkness is my closest friend. That he experienced when God the Father turned his face away from him on the cross. And Jesus experienced this worst darkness willingly on our behalf. He experienced this true abandonment and forsakenness so that we would never be abandoned and forsaken by God. So that we would know for sure that no matter what we go through, as Romans 8 promises us, we are more than conquerors. We shall never be separated from the love of God. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, no matter what circumstance you find you're in, how dark, how painful it is, you will never be separated from the love of God. Why? Because Jesus was separated from the love of God the Father for us. Jesus was the only one who truly could say, darkness my closest friend. That's what he endured on the cross. So not only does this psalm reveal to us the cross of Jesus and drives us to put our hope more in that cross, that because of the cross we can have the comfort and the hope and assurance that we'll never be abandoned, but it also helps us to see that it's the resurrection as well that vindicates the work done on the cross. Actually, if you were to go on to read the next psalm, Psalm 89, verse 46, that's where we have a refrain that keeps coming up in the psalms, and the psalmist is crying out, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And that's something that Jesus must have prayed on the cross as well, as he was going through this unrelenting, unparalleled darkness. Was how long, O oh Lord, how long will you forget me? What was God's answer to that prayer? To that cry of Jesus? When he cried, How long, O oh Lord? It was only three days. Only three days. 
So after three days of enduring the full wrath of God for our sin, Jesus was raised. He conquered over sin, Satan, and death. So it's the cross and the resurrection that gives us the absolute, unshakable hope that we will never be separated from the love of God. That no matter what we go through, we are more than conquerors. That God is always working for our good, no matter how dark our life gets. And these are the gospel truths that we can hold on to during these times. And so when you go through these times, it will be painful because not only are you going through the struggle in and of itself, it's because these other things that you were putting your hope and your comfort in, they get stripped away. I remember when I was going through those times, all kinds of comforts and securities that I was trying to put my hope in were being taken away from me. But there's one thing that um, was lodged much deeper into my soul. That was my hope in the Savior's work for me. And as I look back, I have the benefit of hindsight to say, I think those seasons of depression prepared me for ministry, prepared me to be a pastor better than any other times. Because those are the times that enabled me to understand other people's pain, to come alongside them, to understand them, to have genuine sympathy that comes from personal, experiential wisdom. And I could minister out of that pain. As I look back, I see God's wisdom and purpose in having me go through these things. And so, hopefully, in looking at Psalm 88, combined with the psalm that we saw this morning, this gives you a renewed hope. This gives you a renewed, a renewed resolve to exercise faith and commitment and obedience to God no matter how hard life gets. And not only that, as you go through life, as you go through these worst seasons, clinging to God, crying out to God, staying with God, you can be someone that God is molding to come alongside others, to serve and to comfort as well. Amen? So hopefully that was helpful for us um, to go through uh, these two psalms today. So with that, when we, uh, when we go to the Lord. So I'll invite the, uh, the worship team you guys can come up. And uh, again, we're going to tonight, like you guys did this morning, spend some time in our groups. You know, just talking more about what we've heard, sharing about our lives and our struggles to live this life of faith, to pray in the midst of seasons and experiences like these. But before we do that, um, I think it'd be good for us, just like we did this morning, just to spend personal time going to the Lord. Let me, um, for 
just give us some time. I know you already did this this morning a little bit, but um, just go further in being very.